0: Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. Last week, we did the preliminary material. And this week, we're going to jump into the text itself. Before we do so, let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. If you recall from last week, the book of Proverbs is a complex book. The first section in Proverbs is probably the one you're most familiar with. It's dominated by the dialogue of a father to a son and also uses the motif of uh, wisdom as a righteous woman and foolishness as a seductress. So in terms of the structure of the text... At chapter 1, we have a title and preface. The title is chapter 1, verse 1. The preface, verses 2 through 7. And this constitutes the original work of Solomon where he himself is writing these discourses. Now this goes then properly from 1-1 all the way through nine eighteen. These are Solomon's extended discourses on wisdom. And after this, he compiles some of the wisdom of others, if you recall. But we'll broach that once we arrive. So these first nine chapters are a book within a book, so to speak. Beginning at verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And while these are certainly identifiers of who Solomon is, they also bring to our mind that deeper reality of which our Lord himself speaks when he says to the Pharisees, for example, you search the scriptures for in them you seek life, but it is they that speak of Me. And so we understand that even as the Holy Spirit inspires the authors of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit does so with an eye toward Christ. So we would be utterly negligent to miss the language of Son of David and King of Israel. These titles held by solomon point to the one who will hold these titles eternally christ is the son of david christ is the king of israel so right off the bat then we can see hints it's maybe not all that clear but we can see hints of the christocentric nature of proverbs We remember that the kings are anointed ones. They're anointed into their kingship. And the kings thus as anointed ones are simply called messiahs or Christs. Messiah would be the, that's transliterating the Hebrew and Christ transliterating the Greek. But anytime you see a king, you want to be seeing a type and foreshadowing of Christ Or, as is so often the case in the Old Testament, you'll see wicked kings, and you'll see types and foreshadowings of the Antichrist. It's where the language of Antichrist pops up in John's epistle. And you go, where does this come from? What is the biblical or Old Testament foundation for such a title and such a teaching? And it's anywhere where there are kings anointed ones messiahs or christ who act contrary to god then you can see that the whole old testament is filled with antichrist as a type and foreshadowing of the antichrist spoken of in the scriptures and the new testament scriptures okay so we we see here hints at our lord jesus the true son of david the true king of israel the proverbs of solomon son of david king of israel Verse 2, to know wisdom, and of course we spent some time briefly last week talking about wisdom as being identified as Christ. That's going to flesh itself out as we go along, but it's important for us to grasp right here, right up front, that wisdom doesn't simply mean like book learning, or head knowledge, or mental content, it doesn't mean necessarily intelligence or horsepower in the cranium. Wisdom here isn't the kind of thing that Joe Schmoe Pagan on the street can have. And that's going to make itself clear as we move toward the end of the preface. Verse 7 will make this very clear. So we'll return to this, but right off the bat I want to point out in verse 2 that wisdom is... We're already off to a misunderstanding if we're looking at wisdom in a generic sense that anyone can have. So to know wisdom and instruction maybe uh, Wisdom, of course, is kokma. We talked about that last week in Hebrew. And instruction is musar, or discipline, or chastisement. To know wisdom and discipline. So this is instruction um, that carries a kind of strictness to it, a kind of effort, a kind of conformity. All of that is within that semantic domain. So to know wisdom and instruction or discipline. To understand words of insight to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice and equity. And here you can see righteousness, justice and equity while we might while we may be able to parse out some differentiation between those three the margins would be real tight basically synonyms. Equity, as the study note points out, has to do with being level or straight, and thus just. So, righteousness, justice, equity. To give prudence to the simple. um, Simple can mean open or humble. We talked last week about the openness of mind the humility of mind required to say hey my reason is fallen the world's reason is fallen if God says something and it doesn't make sense should I fault God or should I fault my reason obviously my reason and so there's a kind of humility open-mindedness toward what God says, even if we can't yet comprehend it, and simplicity. But that's, may or may not be what's in view here. To give prudence to the simple, simple as we'll see, in fact, the next, I, I believe it's the next usage in the text, really just means gullible. And it often carries with it a negative connotation, and yet a very real connotation. There's a, there's a sense in which we would say, um, with, with John, of course, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But I might modify that slightly and say, if we say we have no gullibility, we deceive ourselves. The, st- the first step to being less gullible is realizing you're prone to gullibility. So, to give prudence to the simple or the gullible, knowledge and discretion to the youth. And you can see parallelism throughout, but here, um, to give prudence to the simple is obviously parallel with knowledge and discretion to the youth, to the inexperienced, to the ignorant in the, in the proper sense of that word, the lacking. So how do we begin Uh, with some very creative grammar? Again, if you look at it, it begins with two and just repeats, and the two is um, seems both active and passive. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction, wise dealing and righteousness, justice and equity. To give, there's the active. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Verse 5, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. So again, two parallel statements here, Hebrew parallelism, it's all over the place. You know this if you read the Psalms, pray the Psalms. The wiser to hear and grow or increase in learning. The one who understands to obtain guidance, further guidance. And Steinman in his commentary points out, and this may be more evident in the original language, I'm not certain, but he points out that these three things together, wisdom in verse 2, discipline or instruction in verse 2, and increase In learning here in verse 5, that these form a kind of stepping stone as one progresses in the way that so, in other words, Solomon is laying out a kind of progression here to receive wisdom, to continue in that wisdom through discipline and instruction, and then to increase in learning these three things. Verse 6, of course, is the prayer for our entire class. (laughs) To understand a proverb and a saying, easier said than done, the words of the wise and their riddles. As a complete digression and tangent, you know Samson always, or frequently depicted as the big dumb jock powerful of body and simple of mind the text itself really challenges that because Samson is known for his riddles and in fact you can even see how um, remember the the bet that goes south with his uh, wife to be he bets all all the Philistines there that he can ask them a riddle and they won't guess the answer and there's this debate over you know the the barter I should say is for clothing and of course he ends up telling his wife to be in the final hour and she goes and tells so he goes and procures the clothing by slaying their countrymen I mean there's a poetic justice there but Samson was himself one for riddles and wisdom he was obviously not very wise in many ways that's true but uh, a bit pejorative. And again, as, a, as an ad- a digression and an aside here, the word riddle sparked that. Alright, so finally then we come to what is in many ways the thesis of these first nine chapters and arguably the thesis of the entire work. The fear of Of the Lord, uh, more explicitly the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning of knowledge. And beginning having here the implicit meaning of source. The fear of the Lord is the source of knowledge. We pivot with the opposite, with an antithesis. Fools despise wisdom and instruction or discipline, which then forms an inclusio with what was introduced in verse 2. So you can see there's a great deal of art here that even comes through, even in the English translation, a lot of literary skill at work. But this... The fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning or source of knowledge, is the meat and bones for why wisdom, knowledge, instruction, and all the other synonyms are specifically having to do with wisdom revealed directly by God wisdom in the Christian sense. We're not talking here about general encyclopedic knowledge or any other such thing. And this then frames the Proverbs Is this is God's wisdom delivered to and through Solomon to God's people. The prerequisite of receiving and growing in such wisdom is fear of Yahweh, which we would simply translate as faith in Yahweh. If why fear is preferable, of course it's the text, but why fear is preferable is because there's a sense in which we have no wisdom unless he gives it. So we are in awe and we are as beggars before him. And he, if, if there is to be any wisdom in us at all, it is given to to us by him, and sustained in us by him. So often, if you spend any time on the internet, you find atheists who have their little argument that they're going to give to God if there is a God, and they have to face him at Judgment Day. And of course, I often thought this, and I later found the same thought in C.S. Lewis, of course, more eloquently worded, but how do you think you're going to have any brain or any logic with which to argue against God when God is the very one supplying that to you? This is the kind of humility that should be obvious to us and that is simply stated at the forefront of a book on wisdom, a book called Proverbs. So the fools then that despise wisdom and and instruction don't just despise it here in a generic sense, but they despise particularly that wisdom and instruction that come from Yahweh. So again, we will return to this theme repeatedly, but you can have a person who is filled with all the wisdom of the world, who has that encyclopedic uh, encyclopedic memory, um, who can outdo anyone in terms of logic, or wits, or intelligence, whatever the case may be. And for all intents and purposes, they they would be labeled by Solomon as a fool, because they do not have that wisdom that comes from the one who is wisdom. Okay, so seven is very much a central point and thesis and helps us read now that brings us to the helps us read the rest of the document so that brings us to the end of the title and preface the title being verse one the proverbs of solomon son of david king of israel the preface proper following verses two through seven let me pause there see if you have any questions or any thoughts on this section hopefully straightforward enough when we go into verse 8, we have what is what can be recognized as the first address to a son. And this would be the first of 10 that will appear. This section goes chapter 1, verse 8 through verse 19. And it is worthwhile pointing out um, the filial language. We see that even in the title, of course. Um, son of david but here um, in verse eight the injunction is to hear my son your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching so the idea of sonship is central and this is a no-brainer for us as christians who have received the new testament behold what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of god tracing back to our lord's own words that we must be born from above born of water and spirit and in receiving this birth from above we have become new creatures sons of god And so to read this in a baptismal sense is is the proper way simply because the Holy Spirit who inspires Solomon to write these words about sonship in the filial language, the Holy Spirit knows well how this is type and foreshadowing of the fullness of that is to come and so as we receive this there's no sleight of hand in us saying yep the holy spirit knew everything that was to come in the new testament and we ought to read these words as understood in their fullest sense so we meditate on the the filial language no problem whatsoever to um, meditate on our status as sons of the living god verse eight of course being grounded in the family And I think the study note is great at this point. Verse 8. A mature generation, including both fathers and mothers, encourages the next generation to follow the treasures of true wisdom, especially the knowledge of salvation by grace through faith. And then a note in the ancient Near East, the term son was often applied to a student, signifying the closeness of the relationship between teacher and pupil. So both of those are great, but I especially enjoyed the emphasis of a mature generation, um, which of necessity includes fathers and mothers, and both of them encouraging the children, the subsequent generation, to follow in the treasures of true wisdom. A great point. And one that, again, we need to take heed of in our own culture and context where increasingly uh, mother and father are viewed as as ripped apart. the father largely being replaced by the government. And the mother yielding her children over to the government that they might be catechized and become servants of said government. Here is a different vision. So, once more, hear my son your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. So, the godly instruction and teaching of parents adorn their children as a garland for the head and as pendants for the neck. Maybe a, a a reference to mind and heart. It's the place of the garland and the place of the pendant. Verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. All right? So it's not enough for people to be foolish by themselves. They want company. And so we're given here, the the antagonist here, is that uh, fools are constantly going to try to entice or coerce you into their foolishness. So we have to be on guard. And St. Paul uses that exact language that we should be on guard in in instructing a young pastor he says that we are to guard the deposit of the faith not let it be stolen from us and here we are to guard ourselves lest we ourselves be stolen away by the enticement of fools so if sinners entice you do not consent if they say verse 11 come with us let us lie in wait for blood let us ambush the innocent without reason Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive. And whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them okay well that seems obvious enough but here we're given their enticement and there is already here some things to ponder that the enticement of fools immediately brings to mind bloodshed, theft and sheol which here is used in the widest sense as death so ambush the innocent without reason like death let us swallow them alive. Like shale, let us swallow them alive. All right, so taking the life of a neighbor and taking his goods, doing what must be done to receive wealth, precious goods in verse 13, plunder, and then in verse 14, purse. So, apropos of our Gospel reading today, the foolish here are pursuing mammon, wealth, at all costs because it is their God, it is their master, so they despise the one who gives life, the one who gives good to all by opening his gracious hand. They despise him and so they take and they thieve. Don't be caught up with them. And then I don't think it's overdoing it to say that these are two fundamentally different paths in life. It may not be to the extreme of physically <clears throat> murdering someone and stripping them of their goods, but one way of life pursues mammon and will get that by whatever means necessary and with, with maybe small personal caveats well, I don't mind ripping them off. I'm just not going to kill them. So the difference is one of degree. But the pursuit is effectively the same. I'm going to get possessions at all cost Versus the way of wisdom, which is turned toward God and simply says, what God delivers unto me is good. Even if that's cross or trial. Of course, that's the book of Job. All right, so if they come saying all of these things, and we got to the the response then in verse 15, let's carry on with that. My son, do not walk in the way with them. And I think at view here is obviously, not not only don't go along with their plan, but don't hold company with them. Don't be fellows with them, friends with them. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. Parallelism. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Again here, evil, not in the abstract, but evil is antithetical to Yahweh. So you have the fear of Yahweh and the pursuit of Yahweh or you do not fear Yahweh and your feet run to evil. All right, verse 17, more guidance from the father to his son. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood and set an ambush for their own lives. Now, the study note takes this to mean that in vain is the spread it, they spread out the sight of any bird that is to say if you know the the designs of the evil ones, you know enough to avoid it. As the proverb goes, just so that, you know, a bird sees you setting the trap, it's not going to go be trapped by it. So if you know that this is the case, Then be wise and avoid it. These men lie in wait. They think they're going to do what? Drain the blood of another. They think they're going to ambush another and take his goods. But here is the final outcome. They do not lie in wait for the blood of another, but rather they lie in wait for their own blood. That is to say the evil that they do unto another will be repaid by none other than the Lord. So their whole scheming falls back upon their heads. Same with the parallel. They set an ambush. They think they're ambushing another. In fact, their ambush is set for themselves because the Lord's going to bring it back upon them. They set an ambush for their own lives. And then 19, a universalizing application. So, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. I think to clarify here, there's nothing wrong with pursuing gain as long as it is justly gotten. But here, everyone who is greedy for unjust gain um, end up lying in wait for and ambushing themselves. And I think that this cuts uh, very deeply to us as Americans, especially because we think if it's legal and I can get away with it, I'm going to do it. Why wouldn't I? But here is a reminder that there's a deeper morality we're answerable not only to man and man's laws, but also ultimately to God. It may be legal and yet sinful it may be legal and yet answerable unto the court of god so we need to let that govern the way in which we treat our neighbor financially and the way in which we pursue making a living and making a life here in this uh, for this short time period that we're given before we face that great judge so again, um, universalizing such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. And again, this is kind of a, maybe it's a little bit of a trope, or maybe it's become a little trite, but it nonetheless is true and has a certain impact to it. And that is that whatever possessions you've gotten wrongly end up possessing you. There's a curse that comes with them, so that the ill gotten gains dump illness upon you. And that is frequently documented in nonfiction and fiction alike. <clears throat> and if nothing else, even if you get away with it for the few decades that remain in this life, you're not going to get away with it after that. So, this is then if we know these things then this constitutes, in a real sense, because we still have the desires of the sinful flesh within us, even as God's children. But this constitutes the fear of the Lord. Even, in, even at the lowest level, if we were to make some distinctions here, the lowest level of that fear is, I'm not going to do this because I'm going to see him. Maybe in a few decades, or maybe tonight. <laughs> maybe this very night, your life is required of you. As god said to one fool in the gospels so that's the first element of fear is a recognition that there is a judgment that transcends the judgment of the world now think of and i don't want to digress too long on this but think of what happens as a culture and i'm not even interested in like christianity here per se think of what happens when a culture and a people no longer believe that there's any god that there's any accountability that there's any final judgment It's just all a great big accident, a cosmic accident that happened. It's accidental that we evolved. It's accidental that we're all here. What's to, and I'm just an animal, what's to stop me from behaving like an animal, getting out of you, anything I can get out of you, and trying to get through life just seeking nothing but my own pleasure at the expense of whomever? If there is no accountability, that attitude takes over within society and everybody begins to do simply what they can get away with. How do you stop that? okay that's yeah that's um too godly of a response uh <laughs> we're, yeah we're, we're not at that level of wisdom yet uh h- how you immediately stop it when people no longer regulate their own behavior because they no longer fear the judgment of god is that behavior has to be regulated for them and that is done through laws So in a society where you see law after law after law after law after law, what it actually is a collapse of the character and dignity of the people, and you say, well, why is that? And by and large, because they do not recognize that they will be held accountable by the highest of all courts in a short amount of time. When people believe that, whether it's explicitly Christian or not, they self govern, and they create a relatively wiser and relatively more moral society. And that, in many ways, spells out much of what's happened to American culture, Western culture, in very short order. So, to be wise, then, is First and foremost, to realize that we ourselves are and to teach our children that they themselves are beholden and accountable to God. And don't think for one second that just because it's legal or just because you can get away with it, that that's the threshold. The threshold is you standing before God and being answerable. Okay? This section, then, um, this first address to a son, ends here at verse 19. With this threat that what you possess ends up possessing you and stealing your life if you have gotten it in an unjust way. Let's pause there, see if you have any thoughts or reflections, anything to add. Maybe clarify. I,
1: I wonder, too, if you might say something like this, that the person who wants to get away with it, as it were, wants to get away with stealing people's house and shed, shedding their blood and all, all that, that sort of thing, is like the guy who, who has some terrible disease and wants to get away with not having to take the medicine for it. You know, he. It's like, oh yeah, you've got cancer, Mister Brandt. Mm. Oh yeah, but at least I avoided taking the chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. You know, right? It, it, yeah, injustice. I think Plato put it this way: it's like a disease of your soul. It's a. It's like having cancer in your soul. I, he didn't say cancer, mm-hmm. but so the the. Right, the punishment for justice isn't just in the fact that God in the future will lower the boom on us. It actually has an immediate problem, right, that it's you're, you're destroying your soul.
0: Absolutely. There's that connection between temporal and eternal punishment, and we can think of this as externally imposed and there's certainly nothing wrong with that but we can as as you very well put think of this organically too that in effect you don't get away with anything and if you eat poison your body is going to be affected by it if you sin you're going to be affected by it there's no escaping right at that at that level and that has temporal and eternal consequence Um, of course you know, for us as Christians who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who believe that we're sinners and confess our sins, who strive against our sinful nature, I mean, we see how without the gospel of Christ Jesus, we're utterly and and forever lost. And we see the great gift that has been given us, that his blood has been shed to make atonement for our sins. And rather than, I I mean, inspire us in the least to, oh, okay, he wants to forgive, therefore I'm going to sin more. It's like, no, he has forgiven me so great a penalty. He does not treat me as my sins deserve, even when the consequences of my sin catch up to me, this is his fatherly discipline and chastisement and the proof that he loves me and wants me to be better, then we can see how this whole thing coheres. So um, I just don't want don't to do too much of one side of the coin, which is the law and the judgment and the threat and the illness, without also giving the rationale for why we're Christians in the first place. Because there is one who has paid that external punishment. There is one who has been sickened himself with our sins, that he might be our great physician and healer. And so that factors in as well, doesn't it? Those two sides of the coin that we Lutherans kind of refer to as law and gospel. Um, we just want to be very careful that with law and gospel, we're not playing intellectual games. We're talking about realities written into our very lives, temporally and eternally. It's no joke. It's no fool's play. It's no mental game like, oh, here's the law. It's just there to condemn me. Oh, here's the grace. Okay, I'm forgiven. Now who cares? Um, that's, that's to uh, be utterly foolish. And there your analogy fits so well. So thank you for that comment. Appreciate it. Please, Alice.
2: Well, I was thinking um, we were founded. I know we weren't founded by all Christians, but a Christian ethic, Christian Judeo ethic. And um, we all accepted that. We all had a, a total morality as a nation that, you know, was written on our hearts as we grew up. We weren't to steal. We weren't to. And now In embracing this pluralistic society that we have showed, any, you know, Christianity is almost an anathema. You can be any religion in the world. And I actually do not believe that they adhere to the same standards. And as you said, we're not exclusionary, but that's how we're painted. And if we don't go back to, Christian ethics are leaning I don't see how a country can survive because the church and the teachings of the church I think kind of bound us together well not excuse me well not exactly the same we were on the same road and we don't seem to be on that road anymore
0: yeah, and that, that's my comment, that just at a foundational level, when people lose the fear of God, when people lose the knowledge that they're going to be answerable, then they no longer self-govern or self-regulate. And so that, then it's left to the government to do that for them, but it's a losing proposition. The laws are always trying to keep up with people who are always trying to skirt them, and that's the, that's the disintegration and demise of a culture. Yes, please
3: the The other side of this, I know you tried to pastor. You are moving it towards the grace side, right? So, mm. here, so I, you know, my military side's coming up. I want to move it back to that law side <laughs> here a bit.
2: Yeah.
3: The I'm yes, our society is absolutely losing a safe base of morality, sense of justice, all those things. But we need to be careful as Christians too that we don't get complacent in saying. Oh, this is all for those crazy liberals out there. Thank the I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, and I will go home justified in my heart. And guess which? Guess who actually goes home justified? Not us.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: So, like, you know, like I I look at this like greedy for unjust gain, like the I don't know the Christian who is selling a house and has it buried somewhere in the paperwork that oh, you need to. uh, Drain the the that basement drain. They have basements in the Midwest. I don't know if you know about this, Californians, um, <laughs> um, but they do. Um, so you have to like do a special uh, thing with the drain, like every week, or the basement will flood. You don't tell them that directly because then they could use that to negotiate the price of the house lower. But technically, it was in the contract and you signed for it. And then that person goes forward, and they have to do like forty thousand dollars of Repairing their house because their basement floods and it Mm -hmm. wrecks a bunch of stuff. But you made out scot free. Like, I mean, there's like we have to be careful. Like, and not just say this is this is against. Like, we in our hearts, we are greedy for unjust gain, and we're we're all taking advantage of our neighbor right now in a thousand different ways. We're just not even thinking about it. So. Yeah, so well said.
0: I mean, if the, if the flesh did not still adhere to us and pervert us in thought, word, and deed, then we would need no such instruction. Uh, thus, we see ourselves as the, as the Son, here in the text, being warned by the Father against giving ourselves over to the ways of the world, even though we clearly have those desires within our heart we confess them we resist them we put them to death where we fall into them we repent of them we um, receive that forgiveness and absolution from from the cross and we set out to not fall into that foolishness again right and that's in essence in a nutshell the christian life yeah absolutely the case absolutely the case so yeah, maybe that's all I have to say about that. I, I see a couple hands popping up. We can, um, yeah, we can entertain those quick and see what time we have left.
1: One thought also occurs to me. Uh, you're talking about how we need to have someone, or right, we, we need to have someone control our desire for for injustice, right? We all inherently have this, you know, Ungovernable nature. It's like we live with an animal inside. We live with a tiger inside of us. That's our sinful nature. Um, And to tie this to the beginning of Proverbs, it seems to me that the first institution that God gave us for that is our parents. Mm -hmm. Right. Our parents are supposed to teach us to control. They're like experienced animal tamers that are teaching us how to control Ah. that tiger that lives inside of us. Yes. Right. Right. And if we get away with not, you know. Uh, being, uh, having, learning from them, if we say, oh, I've, at least I avoided all their claptrap, we end up with a wild tiger living inside of us, which is bad, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And and I think that ties sort of this whole idea of, of our needing to have some kind of external control. Mm-hmm. You know, the first thing God gave us for that is our parents.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and as Luther would say in the fourth catechism, as those who hold the office of God unto us and are the first ones to raise us in the way of law and gospel and instruct us in the way we should go yeah and to be clear I mean if you just look at the text itself the text of the assumption is you are one who fears Yahweh you are a son of God and thus, thus there's, you can tell in the text itself there's not a whole lot of talk about grace or mercy and forgiveness because the whole point is like don't do this in the first place and that's, um, you know, I, I can think of even in the New Testament, John writes that way. I, I write these things to you that you may not sin. I mean, goal number one is not, hey, do whatever you want to do and get forgiven. And then, oh, when somebody tells you not to sin, that's legalism. <laughs> that's, are we reading the same Bible? Uh, goal number one is, I write these things to you that you do not sin. But if you do, there is an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who sets himself forward as the propitiation for our sins, right? That's the proper ordering and emphasis. So yeah, to be clear, we're doing a little digression and a little homiletical treatment. Strict exegesis, this is nothing but a warning from a father to the son, but it's a loving warning. And this is the other thing that's maybe, I don't want to get on too big of a soapbox about this. But it's one of the ways our understanding of the nature of the law has gotten perverted in later Lutheranism, where we just see law as bad or law as wrath. I mean, think, think of this. Like, okay, you've got a little kiddo. They can't see up to the top of the stove. You've got it on. And they come running up, and you say, don't touch that stove. I mean, law or gospel? <laughs> <laughs> All right, in the strict sense law, but is that law there to condemn them? No, the law is to save them from great harm and danger. And so the the law itself factors into paternal Love, And that's very much the sentiment of these opening um, chapters uh, of Proverbs. And really the entire book is like, I'm telling these things to you because I don't want you to burn yourself. Not because I'm some tyrant, not because I've got a set of arbitrary laws that you have to realize you can't fulfill so that you have to fall on grace. I mean, all of this is just theological games from people who are bored and decadent. What we really need to re- cover is that paternal voice of God our Father saying don't do this because it's going to wreck you and wreck the people around you. And that's really what we have heretofore. Please, uh, was there another hand? We're okay? See we've got, oh that, that was the other hand. and yeah, we've got two minutes left so that's fine. Let's, we'll take the question or comment and um, then we'll just pick up uh, next week with um, verse 20.
4: This must have been about twenty years ago. We had a pastor who would make the point that the culture falls first from the church, and we can see what the church at large looks like today, conceding and and sliding down. But the other thing, I get the visual of from Breaking Bad, and uh, how that life ended. But especially Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad, You've seen that, that series. <laughs> you know,
0: <laughs> I haven't even seen that.
4: Oh, oh! If you can take it, okay. there is a point where you say, "Can oh. I take any more of this?" Oh,
0: it's one of those. Okay, <laughs> okay so my... I mean to derail your point.
4: <laughs> okay. Anyway, there's a scene where the main character has gained lots of money, hmm. and it's hidden away in a storage vault. But I'm thinking it's really a picture of a vault, a grave, to a tombstone. He's all alone there, and all that paper money is piled high. And he loves it, and it's so vulnerable. It's nothing. He's lost his family, everything. It goes on and on, the story.
0: (laughs) Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah, the tragedy of gaining wealth, which at absolute best is yours for a little bit of time, but God assures you that it won't bless you. It'll be empty. Next week at verse 20 of chapter 1, we'll encounter the first poem about wisdom. This is where wisdom is is, uh, personified in the feminine. Um, One of three poems. So we'll plan to do that next week. The Lord be with you.